Most investments carry risk, but there's one that is all upside. The only risk-free investment is an investment in yourself. The Globe and Mail is the largest business newsroom in Canada, interpreting and unpacking macroeconomics, housing, policy decisions, and world events. Enjoy a comprehensive suite of business newsletters, breaking news, and market updates straight to your inbox. As a subscriber to the Globe and Mail, you'll get access to investor tools like advanced charting, portfolio with the Wellscope report card, providing independent six-factor review of your portfolio, and stock screener to help you find the right investments. The Globe and Mail is offering a special digital subscription rate just for Looney Hour listeners. For a limited time, get access for $75 a year for your first year. For more details, visit globeandmail.com slash podcast. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 77. As always, joined by the three amigos. We got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, and Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Rich, back in his orange shirt, back in London. What's going on? Back in London, recovering from a two-day hangover. But uh, no, it's good. It's actually sunny. Daylight savings time is over. It's the best time of the year in London. It's uh, time for beer gardens, and uh, the football's heating up. And uh, yeah, lots to talk about. It's good. And uh, yeah, it's fun. You're always hungover. As well. I am a little bit always hungover. <laughs> Wednesday's the new Thursday, right? Keith? Uh, you know, it's the same thing. I'm just happy when Rich is happy. That makes this podcast flow so much better. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, like over here in the Maritimes, we're getting ready for spring. You can, you know, you can feel it outside. It's coming. And, uh, you know, we'll, this year we'll have the second annual ice cap beer garden get together. We'll try to, whoa, 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 Rich, yeah. I didn't get my invite. Did you? No, I did not get my invite. Jeez. Well, it's been lost the did. mail again. Canada post all these budget cuts. We're going to try to improve our numbers from last year, which I think we had four people. So maybe we'll That's double nice. it to ace. Yeah, no, it was fun. But fun, anyway, yeah. Fun, we, we... fun tip for the listeners. Uh, Keith has, Keith has quite the, uh, the wine palette big pinot noir guy if you're ever gonna send him a bottle <laughs> i told him what uh, i drink he almost puked by the way everyone that's not necessary but we will we can absolutely share some wine or a pint or something so anything happening this week in your neck of the woods steve well yeah i mean we can start things off on the real estate front um it's 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 been busy it's it's crazy i don't know i don't know what to tell you like you know banking crises be damned um canadians aren't thinking about those they're out there buying housing right now and 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 so yeah i've been been surprised um around the resiliency i think that what we're seeing we've talked about it on the show um you know 20 year lows nationally in new listings very difficult to have a bear market uh, when you've got no inventory. So yeah, we're just seeing people out there, predominantly like young families, people that are just ready to move, wanting to move and, uh, multiple offers on pretty much any entry-level house, uh, entry-level product in general is, is just very active. Things are selling like hotcakes. Um, because again, there's, I think the biggest thing here is, is not that there's just like this insatiable demand that like 
people are falling head over heels, but there's really no inventory. And so you get a decent list and it comes to market. You're, you're, you're almost certainly competing. So I, I mean, it's kind of interesting if you're, I mean, I can tell you for sure that prices are up this year. Um, they're up from last year, especially towards the end of last year when we had really, I think the depths of the, the, the housing bear market. And, uh, so maybe, I don't know if that complicates the path forward for the bank of Canada, but, uh, housing is doing just fine. At least for now, it's, it's almost as if housing bottomed two to three months ago. <laughs> I told I, you, you, you beat were me warned. to it. <laughs> you were warned. <laughs> no, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I mean, like, I still think there's, you know, I still think there's risks out there. Right. I mean, as we're going to get into in the show, um, but as it stands, the inventory levels where they so are listeners, everyone listening that that that's called the hedge, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's the time to, you know, be risk, risk off and, and, you know, plowing huge amounts into the market. I mean, I think, Hey, if you got to buy a house to live with your family, you know, you'd be there for the next 10 years, probably not going to make a big difference, but uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm still pretty cautious. I think there's, there's still product out there that's kind of struggling, but um, to that point, actually, I'll bring up on the show a little bit of news. We did have an announcement from the federal government regarding the foreign buyer ban. So you'll remember on uh, the Trudeau government, which basically said, you know, you're xenophobic if you were against foreign buyers, uh, then later, you know, came out with a foreign buyer ban last year. So there's a two, there's a two year resident, there's a two year ban on residential purchases. Now, non-residential, non-residential purchases. No, residential. Oh, Okay. Right. So if you wanted to buy a residential property, you were not, oh, if right. you're a foreigner, you're not allowed to buy residential for two years. So two year ban. Got, got it. Sorry. And uh, again, you know, classic government, it just not very well thought out policy. Like just, they don't really consult people in the industry and they just implement policy. So, you know, you, you immigrate a million people into the country more than half of those were non-permanent residents, which is basically foreign students, temporary workers. So you're asking people to come here and work in this country to shore up some of the labor issues. And then you're telling them, well, you can't buy housing. You need to go and rent. So, and, and the rental market's horrible as, a, as anyone can attest to. And so there, there was all this blowback, I guess. And so basically what the foreign, the, they've come out and they've said, okay, uh, we're going to make an exemption now that if you are here on a work visa and you are applying for PR, uh, you can purchase one one residential property in Canada. So that's an exemption. People are all upset on Twitter about it, saying, "Oh, you know, this tax, this ban has no teeth." So that was number one. And then number two, which is again not well thought out policy, was. You have a local developer. Let's say you have a local developer in Vancouver. A lot of the times that developer will have capital partners, right? I mean, these are hundreds of millions of dollar high-rise projects. So they'll have capital partners. And let's say, you know, 5% of their company is American. Under that circumstance, they are not allowed to acquire land for the purpose of developing new construction. What? So you can't 
use foreign capital to build properties in right, Canada? Because the corporate structure, right? You look at the corporate structure, it says, well, hold on a minute. 5% of your of the people that are involved in this in this corporate structure are non non domicile. Yeah, they're non domicile. Yeah. So they are considered foreign buyers, basically. And so I think the threshold was like, yeah, if you had, I think, more than 3% uh, of your, basically, development company or whatever was non-Canadian, you were not allowed to buy residential real estate. So you have to think about it. Like Most of the land that developers will buy initially will be zoned residential. It then goes through a rezoning process which allows it to sort of become multifamily and it gets built into condos, right? Wait, sorry, so you, this is bananas. I'm my brain. I <laughs> this is so stupid that I don't understand. So if you're a, let's say a UK investor, let's say a pension fund, and you've allocated, you know, five percent of that alloc of your pension money to buying real estate, commercial real estate, let's say, or residential properties to rent, and you know that population growth in Canada is a high and you want to invest in that market, and then you go to Halifax, which has a shortage of housing, and you say, I want to buy this stuff, and I want to invest money from my country to your country, Canada, you're not allowed to do that? Correct, yes. <laughs> what the fuck? So basically, what? you know, again, we immigrated a million people in 2022, uh, and and we're desperately short of housing supply. And so to the government's infinite wisdom, they've now reversed a lot of that policy. So I think they changed the threshold from 3% to 10%, um, basically. So okay. I literally know, I know friends that are local Vancouver developers, and they're like, oh my God, like we were like, basically, we could not acquire new land to build and these guys built rental housing they built purpose built rental housing in BC but they were not allowed to actually go out and acquire land because the government's foreign buyer ban <laughs> exempted them so anyways so those those are the changes if anyone's looking for clarification if you're just reading the media headlines that shows hey government's easing up on these bans please dig a little further um i think they're actually appropriate changes so is okay. there a I mean, as complicated as it is, and the world is incredibly dynamic. I mean, I think, you know, we're, that's a good example of why it is. Like, Steve, is is there a some kind of a government policy solution for this? Or should it just be left to, you know, the, the, the open market, let the private markets sort it out? Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? I, I mean, I think, obviously, you know, you're preaching at the choir here, Elma free market guy. So, you know, I think that I've heard people like make the arguments that, you know, again, you know, developers are bad people. We need to get housing into the, you know, government needs to buy and build and control housing. And again, if you're asking government to build housing, I can only imagine how over budget and how delayed a project would be under government control. So yeah, I think like ultimately the problem is in Canada is really, I think the permitting process, there's just so many layers of bureaucratic mess that to get through that hurdle is just, it's a disaster. And so it takes way too long to get projects approved. And uh, when you, again, when you, you know, pull in a million people a year, it, it you just, it's hard to keep up. But wait a second. Shouldn't, I mean, the answer to me seems like the, an all of the above approach. Like, you know, Andrew, who was our guest last week. Thank you, Andrew. 
um, who came on, he mentioned what was going on in New Zealand. And in New Zealand, they've just um, they've pan- put the hammer down on planning laws and really have tried to, from a top-down approach, reduce the amount of time um, it takes to get permits and zoning re- rezoning rules and blah, blah, blah. And that's been an obviously decent approach to uh, New Zealand's housing crisis. They have a similar situation as, as, as we do in Canada. Um, but then there's also... Um, you know, in the past, governments have built an incredible amount of low, um, low cost housing. Seems like why not? They own the land. Why should we hand the margin over to people who will inevitably be, um, let's say, politically connected to, to those people? We might, you know, if um, because I can, I can assure you that that's what would happen. Um, and so th- there's that a- angle. But then there's also just in general, just reducing broad strokes, red tape and letting suppliers just get it, get after it um, and even providing tax rates. It seems like the, all of the above approach seems the best. Yeah. One. So so to to your point, and Andrew mentioned this as well, but yeah, so basically uh, New Zealand, I can't remember which part of New Zealand it was. Well, there's only like five cities. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it was like, it's definitely <laughs> the North Island. It's not the South exactly. Island. It's just yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like one of the big main parts of New Zealand basically they they actually I think they outlawed or basically banned single family zoning so they just said like everything has to be like I think I don't know what it was minimum duplex or triplex and and up so like like you're not allowed to build single family housing anymore um yeah I mean obviously if you look at the construction charts now in New Zealand and that in that segment like construction is 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 blowing out uh so people are obviously taking the reins there and the in the free market is doing what it what it would do um and so yeah i mean i look at like vancouver i think it's like this just the city of vancouver in the core um it's over well over 50 percent of the actual land is is already is zoned single family which is pretty crazy because when you think about it like for a very small lot single family lot anywhere in vancouver let's go the east side like you're starting at like 1.7 just for the land, just for the dirt, like for a tear down house. So like, it's really not accessible to, to a lot of people. So I, I mean, no, should they be not. doing, should they be doing blanket zone rezoning? I, I would argue that's that, that makes sense, but I just think the politics get in the way of that. Well, can I ask you one more question? So like to, to what degree, I know you can't put like a percentage on it, but like to what degree is this just like NIMBY, classic NIMBYism that no matter, even if you had the best government in the world or no government in the world, <laughs> um, you, you, you know, NIMBY, like not in my backyard where, where it's just like at the very local level, people are just not willing to accept that councils or, you know, uh, local, um, yeah, local like municipalities or whatever, change a zoning from single family to multifamily, like w- I mean, is it, it you oh, must see crazy. it all the time, right? No, they must be crazy, crazy right? Like, oh, it's and wild. I'm not, ta- I'm not talking, I'm not talking about building a 20 story residential tower next to a single family. I'm saying going from one to three or two, because in, in Montreal, where, where my mother lives out a north, north part of the city, it's all these duplexes. So, you know, triplexes, yeah. duplexes, right? And you have, you know, four or five relatively small apartments, but kind of nice in a nice neighborhood or whatever in this one lot. And Tell me about, you must know some crazy stories, right? Oh, I mean, just go to like anyone, like, I think they're all like publicly available, but like, you can just go to like uh, any, like uh, they call them like readings, basically. It's like a, 
you know, the, the city councilors get together and then they send out these, these, these flyers in the mail and they tell people to show up to come voice their opinions. So you get all these like neighbors that are like, well, I don't want that in my, in my backyard. And so just like the comments. And so what happens is like for, for like, um, to get a project like rezoned and approved, like you might have to go through like three or four readings in Vancouver. So it's like a multi-year process. And like every time you got to go back and hear the neighbors complain. So you have to like tweak like your building. Then they, you come back with a revision. They complain again. It's it's just honestly like to be a developer in in like most of Canada is a complete gong show. But that's just like emblematic, I think, of this country, which is like heavily regulated. Lots of government, like it that, that's like that's Canada and so that applies to the housing front really so I mean I'm I sure mean, we, that's, yeah. yeah but that's I think that's the same I agree with you and it's, it's the same I mean like I live in a nice neighborhood and do I want a like an eight unit building going up next to me like no of course I classic don't. boomer eh? Yeah, no, I mean, I get it, it though. I do get it. I mean, it, it, I mean, like it's it's another it's a similar like, another perspective on it. But like all this this climate change euphoria that's out there, you know, they're all preaching. And how do they arrive at their uh, global meetings? They're on the private jets. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's you know everybody they, they everybody wants affordable housing and, and you know a clean environment stuff like that but when it comes to making that personal sacrifice it, it's tough and i'm sure the whole development industry and i'm sure it's not just in housing i'm sure you'll find it in, in other markets as well but maybe though it, it is best if it is left to the private market because right now i mean we're we're in this incredibly tight market and you know, I mean, we're being overwhelmed with population growth. I mean, overwhelmed in a relative sense, that is, you know, the number is a lot bigger than it used to be. But if things are not great here for people immigrating, then you know, they'll stop coming. Like they'll they'll yeah. go somewhere else. And then, you know, things will work its way out. Or maybe totally. we'll get another new government coming in because, you know, they have a financial budget coming out that may not be that. Yeah, let's uh, let's 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 leave the housing here for cuddling. now and jump over to the budget because I think that was a pretty pretty important we got a lot of feedback from our listeners just asking us to cover it so um you know we'll try to keep our political views out of this as, as best as possible but um Canada's Canada's federal budget so they added 43 billion in net new costs over six years um even as the government projects about 34 billion less in revenue compared with forecasts earlier in November. Uh, the end result is a significantly higher deficit each year through 2028. Uh, and then just to kind of add to that, uh, so total gross new spending is about $67 billion over five years. So that net that they kind of noted earlier basically hides, it's, it's hidden through new tax increases. And uh, so like tax increases are basically tax revenues, Keith, is is certainly up for debate because you know we were chatting about our off air which is the government really never forecasts downturns and a reduction in you know capital markets obviously real estate if real estate goes through a bear market or a prolonged bear market um, the amount of tax revenues coming in the door uh, are significantly going to hamper that that deficit yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things with that. Uh, so, so first of all, you guys remember the first 
Jurassic Park movie that came out? Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. Great one. Yeah, yeah. You know, lots of, yeah. That was, you know, actually, that's where the Toronto Raptors got their name because back then, all of a sudden, <laughs> dinosaurs are cool. You know, everyone was trying to capture that. This is a true and story. Fact. Confirmed. It is fact. Yeah, it is. Like, how many dinosaurs are in Toronto? <laughs> it rhymes like that. Well, Canada has a has a, has a long storied history of Jurassic uh, digging and uh, archaeological <laughs> finds. But anyway, keep going. <laughs> Climate change killed the dinosaurs. Oh, my. Anyhow. Anyway, in that movie, Jeff Goldblum had a really great quote I thought was would apply to the budget. And uh, remember, he's looking at the big pile of dinosaur dump. Do you remember that? Like he was like two mm-hmm. stories high. And I think it applies to the budget. He said, man, that's one big pile of shit. So I think that's <laughs> why that <laughs> That's oh, your man. quote? Oh, my God. Yeah. This is, a, this is a tough one. This is a really tough budget. So carrying on from what Steve, Steve's perspective, just to open up the conversation, how like going into the future, what the deficit will look like and tax revenues and, and stuff like that. So two points. First of all, this happens all the time. So every single budget comes out and every year the, um, I think it's the CBO. What, what is the CBO? Or is that down in the US? The Congressional Budget Office, that's the US. That's the American. So the Canadian equivalent, they'll come up with their estimates going out and stuff like that. Um, their long-term projections, they're going to make it look as best as they can. That's like, they're not going to show a, a big pile of crap, right? They want to make it as look as great as it can. And even with this budget, the, as best as they can make it look longer term, it's, it's, it's a tough one to swallow, guys. It's a real tough one to swallow. So we will jump into it, but uh, that's the initial, you know, thought behind it. And uh, we'll, we're also going to overlay with this for everyone what the market reaction could potentially be, and more importantly, what could happen to really cause these projections to go off. Because if they go off, then the, we, we do end up paying for it. So we end up paying for either through higher taxes, uh, less services or no services, uh, a, a weaker dollar, higher financing from the yield curve. Like there's, You're attracting... Uh, you're not able to attract high quality immigration coming in or at the university level or innovative companies. Like there's so many potential pitfalls coming up here. If we don't hit this perfect glide that we're looking coming up, what do you think, Rich? Rich has his orange shirt on today, so we know how he feels. Oh, right. No, no, no. Although I do like Jack Layton. But anyways, um, I think it, for me, my, I'm going to, I, my politics are probably quite obvious, but I think for me, it's always about, t- I always have technical nitpicks. The forecasts, like as Keith said, you know, are often always rosy. Uh, just a couple of things that I kind of find annoying, which is like the expectations on inflation, which are basically just under two. That's no coincidence. Um, productivity yeah, that was their growth. projection? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And table A1.1. Um, for how many years? You know, well, it's just two. It's like you know, uh, eight, one point eight, one point eight, one point nine, one point nine. I mean, Goldilocks, but it's bogus. Of course, they, they'll argue that they've surveyed you know thirteen of the best uh, five thousand economists, and uh, they're never gonna. I mean, it's uh, in some ways we have to be a little bit more cynical. They're not gonna pr- pr- propose something that I think is like outrageous. They're never gonna make a call on these economic stuff. 
but I think it's 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 a bit insulting for someone like me who's a bit sensitive about these kinds of things. I just think it's bogus. I think the the um the, the productivity growth stuff I just think is is abysmal. Canada has a horrible record on investing in research and development because we hate the oil sector. We have the worst productivity growth in the OECD. One of my big kind of bugbears is they um they constantly insist on comparing Canada to G7 countries, which I think is a is just a complete basic lie because included in that is Italy that's just not growing hasn't grown for years Japan is an economy that has a population growth that is the same level as it was 24 years ago you have um and then you know you have France and Germany which are just wildly different economies structurally population growth age blah 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 Canada should be comparing itself hey, Rich, to us. Yep. Rich, the data from those countries is kind of like make believe, like isn't it? Right, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure, but Canada is a younger country. It's the new world. It's a commodity-driven economy. It should be comparing itself to much more specific economies. And so, what they do is they use that in order to basically paper over all these shitty numbers. So that's another bugbear I have. One thing I thought, I mean, I'm going to try to stay relatively even, even keel. One thing that I thought was really interesting is they directly address supply chain issues with respect to uh, China and rare earth metals. They, this is now the second budget in a row that they've done this. Um, they talk about lithium, um, nickel, cobalt, graphite, whatever. They have a whole section on that. And they say, we need to move away from the supply chain and only being China, which is, I think, probably, you know, Joe Biden and his crew probably wrote that section for them. Um, but yeah, so I mean, my, my real beef on this whole thing is about uh, population growth and GDP per capita expectations, but we'll get that in, into in a minute. Yeah, I mean, uh, Keith, I guess the one silver lining here to give the government some credit, it was a lot of speculation that they were going to raise the uh, top tax bracket. So you're, they didn't, so you're in the clear there. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, Rich, I don't know if you want to jump into that. There were some interesting comments from uh, Scotiabank's economist there. He seems to be dunking on everybody. He was, he was, uh, he was dunking on the Bank of Canada for a while. And uh, he wrote this note here, I believe it was yesterday after the budget came out. So he said, in a broader <laughs> public policy sense, Ottawa's housing strategy remains confusing. The Bank of Canada is trying to contain inflationary pressures and soften previously raging house prices. The feds have thrown open the immigration doors into a market with no supply, while another tax subsidy to housing starts up on Saturday in the form of a first-time home buyer tax-free home savings account that allows one to shelter up to 40000 tax-free with annual contributions of $8,000. Housing is going to rip after a temporary retrenchment, and there goes the Bank of Canada's efforts. So, I mean, that was just part of his, but essentially saying that, uh, you know, it was an inflationary uh, budget, essentially. I mean, they also provided a subsidy for groceries. Uh, so if you're a low to moderate income family, I think they were giving, you know, if you had two children, it was just under $500. They were giving you single people getting a couple hundred bucks. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, we're at the point now where we're sub subsidizing groceries. Um, obviously, you know, you don't want to feel bad or not feel bad. I should say you don't want to not feel bad about you know low-income people affording food but sorry to interrupt the show just wanted to let you guys know that this episode is sponsored by nordvpn nordvpn now has a brand new feature called threat protection which protects you from nerds like rich 
who might run malicious websites and malware. Get hassle-free virus and threat protection and improve your digital experience. In simple terms, NordVPN is a one-click personal cybersecurity tool. In this crazy macro world that is moving at the speed of light, don't leave your personal online security to chance. Get NordVPN using a special promo code just for Looney Hour listeners. Get your exclusive deal by going to nordvpn.com slash Looney Hour. No, that's that's exactly right. But there's, I mean, these people are decidedly not supply side economists and no one who's ever studied the Chicago School of Economics or even knows who Milton Friedman is clearly works for this government. Uh, because instead of subsidizing people, you could just cut taxes, right? This is something known as, I mean, it, it's, you know, there's, there's that way to do it. Um, but the other thing is on the inflation thing, I completely agree with that, what that, that gentleman said from or lady said from the Scotiabank. But this is what we we've, we actually talked about this like four months ago, which is you can't have that much population growth and not have it affect basically the general inflation level. And so in the, the budget, there's projections on what interest rates are going to do. And basically on March, on March, in the end of this month, interest rates are going to start falling in Canada and continue falling until they get back all the way back down to 2%. And the reason that's a dangerous game to play is because the interest payment on the uh, debt on the new debt and all of the sort of the cascading effects of that, those lower interest rates are going to affect spending and projections and growth and this and that. And, and when you, um, and I just don't buy any of that, just to put it mildly. Uh, yeah, so we'll see. I don't know, Keith. Do you have anything? Well, on Rich, that? to your to your point earlier on, um, so basically they are projecting. What are they projecting? Two percent real GDP growth. Oh yeah, that's the. But that's if your population is growing by two point seven percent, which it did in twenty twenty two, maybe it doesn't grow that much again. But it, your population essentially is growing more than two percent and so well let's just use their numbers let's use their numbers and I'll, I'll let you guys do the math and so their real gdp growth projection from 2022 which is obviously past 2027 is two percent now this includes the massive fill up in 2022 right so it's a little bit overestimate but whatever and then on table on the next table on table a1 which i referenced their projections for real gdp growth are two percent so two minus two equals zero. And so basically, you're, the reason I'm laughing is because it's like, normally when you're projecting, presenting a budget, you want it to be rosy. You want to tell people how amazing you are. We're investing in this. We're saving the whales here. We're giving uh, this people there. And, but this, this basically, this um, budget tells Canadians in no uncertain terms. Again, this is supposed to be rosy, but this budget tells people in no uncertain terms that they're not going to be better off in six or sorry, four years from now. And that's an incredible indictment on their policies. And they're these are what they're telling us, you know, so you can only imagine that if things don't go as well as their projection, which they never do. That means we're basically going to be materially worse off in four or five years. And so that's well, the reason I'm laughing is because normally when you're presenting something, when, when, right, Steve, when you're trying to sell a house, you say, oh, no, it's not that loud over here. Or, you know, God love Keith. He's had a great couple of years, but, you know, he's not going to tell you you're going to there's a possibility for doing well. I'm the same way. Sure, I can predict the, the cycles. <laughs> and yet their own projections are telling Canadians they're going to be poor over the next five years. And that's a remarkable, I think, admission. Every listing I have is the best listing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Keith, what do you uh, think? I, I just want to listen to you guys. You guys, but you're hitting it right on the head. And, and so what everyone needs to appreciate here, you know, you get the headline sound bites, 
And the, the, the sound bites, they're always nice to hear. I mean, you know, people should have access to, to dental care, for example. They're going to do that. More spending on healthcare for the provinces. Um, Clean technology. I don't know if throwing more money for wages solves the healthcare problem. There's a lot of things going on there, however, but they're doing that. But but what you know, both of you are pointing out here, and specifically rich you know, with, with, with the hard data, when you get into the specifics and the baseline numbers they're using for their projections, um, we, we could have some pretty big struggles coming up here in the country. And uh, so notice I'm saying this with a calmer voice. I'm not talking about a big pile of crap or anything. It, it is a, a realistic perspective. And um, I mean, so for example, if you just listen to it, let's make it real simple. We're, we're budgeting higher deficits for the rest of this term. What it was the projection for seven, eight years out? Six yeah, years, twenty twenty seven. Twenty twenty seven. Okay, so every year you have more deficits or a little bit less. And, and by the way, the deficit number that that's just like a, a gold seek function on your Excel spreadsheet. That's all of this. So many factors can go in to move that around. But if you have bigger deficits every year, guess what that leads to? More debt. Yeah, higher bigger taxes. piles of debt. Yeah, absolutely, bigger piles of debt. If you have bigger piles of debt piling up. Then you you got to service that debt, and um, so I think one of the numbers that that I saw from one of the studies with this, at current rates, the interest expense is going to be about ten percent of current tax revenues coming in. So so think about that for, for a moment. Ten percent is just going to pay interest on this. We're back to this big pile of. Rich, what's the projected interest rate though? Because that's also like an unknown variable as well. Well, I mean, that's that's used on on that's from um, economist expectations and the yield curve. Um, obviously, I, I'm a contrarian when it comes to this view. I think interest rates are going to stay either at their same levels or even go higher over the next five years. All of the projections, I'm certain, have coming them going them going down. So the bond rates are down at you know three percent or whatever for ten years and et cetera. So that's going to be an important variable, right? Just figuring out what happens with inflation and interest rates because that's going to you know move these numbers around. Yeah, it absolutely is. So so I mean along this theme, you know, we're getting bigger this, you know, higher this and more taxes and and stuff. Uh so eventually it could create this situation which we introduced earlier where there's not enough tax revenues around to even control this deficit spending that's that's happening. And it doesn't matter who's in power at the time. So obviously the liberals and the NDP partners came out with this budget. Um, and this could very easily flip to someone, another party, you know, very soon. And then, you know what, they could have a very similar, you know, response to it because it's hard when you're dealing with, with this and it's irrelevant, you know, how it was created or why it, it is there. But we could, in Canada, we could, very quickly and, and and suddenly find ourselves in this situation where it, it is becoming out of control or it's uncontrollable. And then that gets reflected then in 
equity market prices, the Canadian dollar, the bond market, and so forth. And, and then the moment that we're not able to attract foreign capital at, at that because of what's happening, you know, that's when we do run into this slippery slope again. And because uh, you guys may not remember too much, but back in the early O's, I mean, the Canadian dollar was was headed to 50 cents. Like that's where it was going. And that peak amount of fear, that's when it actually stabilized and the government at the time, I think it was liberals back then. I think it was Paul, yeah, Paul Martin. Martin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they came out and they said, you know what, this is what we're going to do. You know, we're going to start paying off the debt. And it, it did turn things around. So it is, you can write the ship. But as it stands right now, I mean, trying to sell this as a, as a prudent budget, I mean, that that's tough. So let's go down through the whole prudent aspect. It's really two two prongs they're looking at or, or two sides one is the healthcare perspective and we'll leave that as it is because that, that's such a tough challenge to solve it, it it has to be or it would have been solved already uh and then they're going with these clean tech subsidies because i know steve you mentioned you referenced you know to to biden's team maybe writing some of that comments in that the rich. uh yeah. in the budget was it rich was it okay because yeah. he's got because well, this... biden called it the inflation reduction act but it had nothing to do with inflation it was basically just a bunch of subsidies for yeah absolutely i mean the whole idea behind for people they don't if they don't understand it um and i can never get my head around it as well but they want to provide subsidies to the, the private sector as well as some public sector entities or organizations to define, you know, greener solutions, you know, for our environment. And because you usually don't make money on that in the initial startup period, the concept or the theory is that, hey, government has to help that industry move along. And then that will provide some really great, you know, long-term investment, and then it'll pay off, you know, down the road. That That's the reasoning behind it. And uh, so that, that's one of the biggest, you know, reasons for, for going in this direction. Uh, you know, one question I'll, I'll put out there, you know, for you guys and everyone else, like, what if that's the wrong strategy? What if the strategy for a clean environment is actually to leaving it to the private sector, you know, to, to figure out? And uh, we can talk about that another day. But, you know, the, the, the American energy sector, you know, they're data metrics that they've been, you know, producing over the last decade, Look, they're becoming cleaner and more efficient than ever before, you know, they're, they're doing it. And, uh, you know, obviously, some people say, well, they're being forced to the government stuff like that. But the point is, you know, they, they are doing it. Um, but we're going down this sort of wacky road here, right now, where it, it, it could create this moment. And we have talked about the Bank of Canada's potential response as well. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think the big, like the overarching theme here essentially is again, it doesn't matter what your political stripes are uh, or your views or, or how you're going to interpret this budget. The overarching theme here is that the level of government and Canada is not alone, but all of these governments are accumulating massive debt burdens, um, you know, trying to sort of keep the system propped up, trying to keep, you know, the, the voter base happy and, and never, nobody wants to sort of go through any sort of difficult times. Right. I mean, you know, like I said, you've got the bank of Canada raising rates to, to come to fight inflation and the government's response is, well, why don't we start mailing people checks to, to, to help, you know, this inflation pain, but that's not going to be the remedy. It's just going to well, create counter, even more. Yeah. It's, it's counter counterproductive. It's, exactly. And, and so I just think like 
bigger picture here is is the moral of the story is basically governments are digging themselves deeper and deeper into a hole. And again, it's not just the Canadian federal government. You know, I'm sitting here sifting through Twitter, and there was a uh, someone that's someone sent me about the uh, you know the city of Toronto um, demanding Canada to bail the city out of its 1.5 billion dollar budget hole. It's uh, basically saying that if Toronto fails, Canada fails. So they want some help now from the federal government. And well, in some ways, there's probably some truth with that. Yeah, I was going to say so, the same thing. So instead of asking bailed out, maybe you just let it happen. And then but there's we'll, no, there's no, there's no responsible people in the room. But I mean, yeah. Toronto is overwhelmingly probably the most productive part of Canada, whether we like it or not. I mean, them, them, a couple of uh, cities in northern Alberta. I mean, you know what I mean? Cities are extremely, extremely productive. They, pro- they probably pay an incredible amount of taxes um, already. Um, I would imagine, you know, yeah. So let's, it, there, there's definitely some truth to that. And although I agree with you that cities should have, should, should probably take, be more um, careful fiscally. It's, it's not necessarily a bad idea that we help our, the largest economy. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the number in front of me, but I remember reading it uh, maybe a month or two ago. Someone was someone had shared it, uh, the, the research note to me about the amount of uh, tax revenues the city of Toronto collects from the, the real estate sector. Yeah. And I think it, it accounted for like, 20, 25%ers. It was something, it was something, it was an, it was an outrageous number basically. Um, so it kind of like, I don't know. It's interesting. It kind of makes you think it's like the, like, you know, government says they want affordable housing, but they kind of need to keep the wheel churning. Like yeah. they can't really have prices fall. But that's what I mean. I, I think one of our first weeks ever doing living hour podcast, I made that, that point, which is, I submit to you that no government wants affordable housing because that means the prices of the houses of their constituents is going down relative to their income. And no one's going to vote you back into your into office if their house prices are going down. And so, you know, it's it's I think and that's why I think we're as, as voters, I think we are sort of responsible for a lot of the shit, basically, the shit sandwich that we're sort of eating. right. Well, yeah, now. And then, no, then no one see, obviously like the one thing to blame base. Right, but it's one thing to blame Justin Trudeau for like not being fiscally prudent, but it's also up for us, for the voters, to reward um, politicians that say they want to be fiscally prudent for all the following reasons. I, it's you know, it's not. Uh, you got to take know, some Rich. responsibility. You got to take some responsibility for what's going on. That's an unacceptable <laughs> view, man. Come on. <laughs> Uh, coming back here though, it, it, and it, again, like I've been negative on 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 this budget and. Um, so it, we, we have unsustainable debt growth. Debt growth is happening right now. And if, if we do get a recession, then it again, it's it's big trouble coming down the line. Or if rates rise, and it doesn't mean the Bank of Canada overnight rate, if, if the yield curve shifts, or maybe the, you know, government, uh, you know, the, the yield curve for federal government that stays flat, but spreads shift. So maybe Canadian, the Canadian yield curve uh, increases relative to the American curve. Like there's so many things here right now. And it's, I mean, like if three of us were in charge on how to fix this, uh, you know, the famous joke, of course, is the first thing you do, you'd quit. It's, I, I don't know how to, how this is resolved. 
because it goes back to, you know, the solutions being offered today are in reaction to the bad solutions that were offered during the COVID pandemic response. I mean, that that's all it is. That's why, you know, we have inflation just raging around the world right now. It, it all squirrels back to that same decision on, on day one. And now we're, I mean, giving a family like 500 bucks to help offset food prices. And at the same time, you're going to make food more expensive longer term. I mean, again, like none of these things make sense. So, so Keith, you chatted about, you know, government revenues. Basically, we think that those might be potentially optimistic, assuming you enter into some, some depth of a recession. Um, how are things evolving in, in, in your opinion, on the global macro side of things, you know, we're seeing, these banking crises, there was a good chart from Jim Bianco there on Twitter the other day, which is still showing that, uh, you know, still, still a lot of uh, deposit outflows, uh, in these U S banks. So the, the issue I don't think has necessarily gone away. Um, it's feels like contagion may be sort of resolved for now, but, uh, you know, how are you looking at things right now in financial markets? Yeah, it's, uh, so the quick answer is funding stress and funding markets that they've improved significantly over the last week. So the re, you know, so let's just back up a second. You know, the, you know, the narrative that we're looking at now is that over the last, let's call it five months, we've had three significant crises in the financial world. So we had the, uh, the British pension fund guilt crisis, um, then we had the Silicon Valley Bank crisis, and then Credit Suisse. So three, if either one of those on their own had the potential to just go kaboom, you know, in the world, that, that's what would have happened. However, the response from either regulators and policymakers was extremely quick. And especially with the Americans, it was very global. So there was no contagion really from those three events. I mean, obviously some folks got hurt out there, but overall they contain it. And that's really great news guys, because I think five years ago, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have happened. They would have just let it blowing up and, you know, see what happened and then, you know, try to respond to it. Uh, so we have that happening. So, so that is good. Uh, and conditions have improved over the last week or so right now. Markets are basically, Hey, risk on again. Obviously, we're coming to quarter end. So this is Thursday, the 30th. Tomorrow's Friday, the 31st, you know, end of the quarter. So there's, you know, lots of window dressing taking place. Uh, but something uh, else really interesting happened last Friday. I want to share that with everyone because these risks are still out there. And it doesn't, it's because something's out there doesn't mean it has to happen. But if it does happen, it, eventually the Fed and everyone else, they won't be able to react as, as quickly and as cleanly as they did. So um, when, when we had the Credit Suisse event taking place, the US Federal Reserve, they opened their swap lines for all central banks that they're friendly with. And uh, they open it up, Max, whatever you need to take, you would take. At the Fed, they also have a, a new credit line, if you want to call it that. I think it's FEMA. So it, it's F-I-M-A, Foxtrot, India, Mike, Alpha, if you're into the Alpha words. Um, that's meant for countries who don't have access to swap lines. And the maximum you can draw on it is 60 billion. 
right? So when you draw on one of these swap lines or this new FEMA one, you need to post collateral. And collateral in that world is, is treasury bonds. That's what you're looking at. You, go, you get a one-for-one you know, coverage with it. So then you start looking around, okay, who has, you know, at least a hundred billion available in, in, in T-bills or T-bonds they can use to post collateral for that. And it, it very quickly eliminates a lot of the people, you know, who would be doing it. So in, in, in you know, in, with, with my friends in, in the industry, we're all having this, you know, great nerdy conversation this week. So who took it? You know, who, who, who took the 60 billion? Some people think the Swiss did it, um, which I find unlikely because they can use the swap lines anyway. And then another group says, no, no, it was the Chinese. China took the money. And because they're the ones with enough, you know, enough collateral in order to do it. That took place on Friday afternoon. And then, so, you know, if there's something bad going to happen, you survive during the week. And then you got to, hey, make sure you shore things up over the weekend. On Sunday night, when the Hong Kong dollar currency opened for trading, it immediately broke through the peg. And it was through the peg for more than a couple of minutes. And then they finally got it under control. And now every day, this this is four days straight now. Um, yeah, it's been up against the, the the upper range of the ceiling here every day this week. So it, it's it's highly likely that the Chinese needed USD cash. So just because you have treasuries, it doesn't mean you have US dollars cash. You have treasuries. Because the old story is, next time you guys go to the store to buy something, Instead of using money, ask the clerk, hey, can I give you a T-bill instead? They'll laugh at you. Right? You, you need, you know, you, they won't you need laugh at you. They're gonna they're gonna look at you like they have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Need my check from the CRA, free yeah, groceries. So Rich, maybe that's not a pickup line to use. No, maybe that's not, not. Yeah. You wouldn't have any success with that no. one. Uh, but back to this story. If it was China who needed the 60 billion, and again, it looks like it was. That's an incredibly significant story that's been developing this week. Because for China to have to draw $60 billion from the New York Fed to help with capital outflows out of Hong Kong, which is, con which is the, the conduit for China, it means that there's something serious going wrong there. There's capital just oozing out of the system. Also, what's happening, if you follow the Hong Kong dollar peg, whenever it reaches that high level of the band and still for a day the next morning they announce how much they've drawn down on the liquid reserves and the liquid reserves right now it's about 55 60 billion hong kong dollars which is about 6 billion usd is not a lot of money um so that's the story that's creeping out there right now and as we go into another weekend and the quarter is over if you come back to you wondering hey what might happen next you know, you, you really want to focus on the China-Hong Kong story, as well as another story that we introduced a couple of weeks ago. Remember the Japanese story we talked about? Yeah. You know, I guess so. They, no, I don't remember. I don't, <laughs> I don't listen to you when you talk. I don't, I don't listen to you when you talk, Keith. I know. People don't realize we're, when we're doing this on the Zoom, you know, you know, whoever's talking, the other two just put it on mute and then they're just like, you know, playing with their, playing with their Tetris, Tetris game or something. Um but uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we introduced the, um, the, the, the potential storyline or risk that's out there that if in Japan right now with the new Bank of Japan governor, uh, if they start to raise rates or allow rates to go higher, it, it's going to give the opportunity for like gobs of Japanese capital to be repatriated. 
back into the country. And that, of course, so when you take foreign capital out of one country and it goes somewhere else, you know, it creates a lot of, and, and the Japanese have just been, they've been stuffing their excess savings everywhere outside of Japan now for 20 plus years. Um, and and one of our, one, one of the guys on Twitter shared the story with us earlier. I don't remember the, the gentleman's name, but thank you, uh, Mr. Gentleman. <laughs> um, but Bloomberg picked up on this story as well, and, and they wrote a really cool article about it. So again, it's another one of these risks that are out there. In the article, it highlights, you know, which, which countries could lose the most capital out of their system and so forth. And, and Europe is, you know, that, that's a pretty big market to look at. So Steve, to answer your question, yeah, from a global macro perspective, things have stabilized quite a bit, but we have these other sudden stories uh, out there right now. And at some point we'll find out, you know, who took the 60 billion if it wasn't the Chinese and it was someone else, then you know we'll have to talk about it then. But it, it's a pretty big story in my world. So yeah, not the, not the all clear. It looks like there was, um, you know, and again, Rich, I'm kind of curious how you interpret this, but uh, you know, another explosion in Fed liquidity. Um, so we've a uh, you know we've injected about 434 billion dollars into the system. So we've raced about 11 months worth of QT quantitative tightening. Um, again, perhaps a one-time liquidity injection given given the banking issues that were, you know, emerging. But, you know, I'm kind of curious, you know, how you're looking at this as well. Well, I think there's a difference between liquidity and solvency. And I think what we've been dealing with um, over the last few weeks has been a liquidity issue. Um, the reason I bring up the solvency stuff is because in 2008, nine or whatever, there was a solvency issue. All that equity across the banking sector in the United States was virtually wiped out. And the quantitative easing and all of the basically policies, whether it was TARP, was this or that, whatever it was in order to recapitalize those banks and banking sector and a bunch of companies that were related to that. They needed those banks were insolvent, and they needed to make them solvent. And a lot of the policies around that were basically to do that either by stealth, um, or because that's not people how people sort of saw it. But um, yeah, in my view, that's sort of what, that was the problem we had there. Um, what we're dealing with now, in my view, again, as someone who's maybe takes a rosier side of this banking sector issue is a liquidity issue. Um, and I think that that's exactly what the discount window is at the Fed for. It is in order to prevent a liquidity issue from becoming a solvency issue. Um, and that we've seen that happen. So Keith made the point that, you know, this time around they stepped in, you know, we know in the past that they haven't, um, whether it was in 2008 or nine, whether it was an issue um, with um, in 2012 uh, and 14 with the European crisis, a lot of those, I mean, you could make the case that a lot of those European countries are insolvent, but just, you know, bear with me for a second. At the time, it was a liquidity issue. And if you could provide that liquidity, then, you know, you can sort of, you can weather the storm, so to speak, and, and move on. And I don't like the conflating those two. I think that that's sort of missing the point. I think I will be proven right or wrong in three or four weeks or maybe a month or maybe three months when we see the number that's at the discount rate window being that's been drawn go back to zero, right? Because that's the way that that chart looks. And I promise I will share it on my sub stack this time. When you have it basically is zero, 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 then it spikes up to 120 and it stays there for three weeks and then it goes back down. And then that's the point of the Federal Reserve. That is 
I know it's scary and I know there's lots of big numbers being thrown around on Twitter, but that is the function, you know, like that's your job description. And so that's that that's sort of my piece on that. I think on on the global macro stuff, I think that the equity market seems to be very happy. I think uh, you know, themes that we talked about over the last, you know, year or two, which is the growth versus value, the tech stuff. I mean, I'm getting hammered on my short tech trade. Um, it's the best performing sector this year, which kind of hurts, but we'll see. I think that that sort of belies a lot of the things that are sort of going on under the hood, which is rolling margins that are rolling over. Sales growth is slowing. Um, you know, if you look at some of the business confidence indicators, yes, that they've popped since, you know, the, the energy crisis that we saw in Europe, but they're still very, very low in China. Um, you know, the ISM is still below 50 in the U.S., um, you know, consumer confidence, which had a sort of a rebound is, is, is sort of stalling out a little bit. Um, you know, there's a lot of the sentiment and technical indicators that have done well, as Keith pointed out, which is, you know, we talk about the move index, we talk about um, European bank stress, that's okay. But bond, but, but bond spreads, corporate bond spreads haven't had the move, let's say in positive territories, they haven't come in, they haven't softened, haven't gone lower, even as the equity market is, you know, um, is, is popped 4,000 and, and continue, seems to be rising. I don't know what's going on today, but um, yeah, having another half decent day today, the credit spreads haven't come in. And so you you sort of, you know, not to overly complicate things, but I think on the surface, there's lots of really good stuff. And, but I think, you know, you just scratch that a little bit. And I, I would say that there's still, I mean, the uh, there's still some neg negative news out there, but I mean, I don't know. Um, I think that the also the other thing I would say is that the you know that the ten year bond yield hasn't really risen and that's normally the sort of a big vote of confidence right that's a, that's that's an important indicator as well. With yeah. the uh, you, you just mentioned your know, credit spreads haven't come down too much sort of Steve have you seen a change with mortgage rates across the curve? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I've been following them extremely closely. I'm actually about to um, do an equity takeout. Uh, so my my construction project in Calgary is basically finished. Uh, so anyone that's been following along there, we did a small multifamily project. So yeah, we're going to... So I've been watching rates literally every day. Um, and despite the, the the large downwards movement in, in, in bond yields, um, the banks have really not cut mortgage rates at all. Uh, five, maybe 10 basis points. Um, but considering the move in, in bond yields, so it tells me that obviously banks are, are being conservative. They're, they're baking in that, in that risk premium, uh, you know, probably trying to, to squeeze higher uh, interest margins. And uh, so that's kind of where we're at right now is, is banks. There, there's a couple of Canadian banks I can tell you that are almost out of the mortgage business where they were like huge, huge I'm not going to name the bank, but huge, huge players uh, during the pandemic, you know, handing out loans, hand over fist to these investors, they've completely pulled back. They, their rates are 50, 60 basis points higher than any other Canadian bank. And, and they don't want the, the mortgage business at all. That, that's really interesting. Because um, if you measure like what one credit spread that we would look at would be uh, triple B's over investment grade, right? And uh, like, as Rich said, like, it's, it's not tightening. By the way, when we say tightening, it means uh, that that's better. That means more people want credit, like they're willing to buy that, that credit. Um, and I always view mortgages as, you know, as kind of simplistic, but, you know, I'm a simple guy, right, Rich? I take mm -hmm. things that way. Yeah. Simple, no simple guy who likes his Pinot. <laughs> it's such a beautiful wine. It, it's complicated and it needs to be <laughs> in the right, exact right climate. 
um, <laughs> where was I? But with but with you know, I view mortgage rates as basically you know, it it is a play on credit spreads. You know, it's just in the you know consumer housing market. So it'll be interesting once again when we get the Canadian banks with their earnings coming out to see what they're doing on their provision for uh, for credit losses. And um, yeah, that that's where we're going. End of end of quarter, like in my world, it's always big because usually people are scrambling to have something on or off their books at quarter end. And um, so we will see how we're looking so you, here. Heading into yeah. The, just uh, to summarize, to kind of wrap it up. I mean, you're, 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 you're cautious. Um, you know, things may have settled down a little bit, but on, underneath the hood, there's still quite a few underlying issues and, and it's sort of caution ahead. Uh, well, well, this is going down through our, you know, this path that we always talk about, you know, we, we, we thought equities, would come down in Q1 into Q2, and you know it, it's it's trading sideways at best, so that makes sense. Uh, it was our expectations for commodities to come down in, in the same time frame, and uh, you know those are those are clients of ours that they know that we've been adding to two different commodity markets over the last few weeks. Uh, once we're finished with that, we'll, we'll share with everyone here on the podcast what we've been doing, and and that's moving in in that direction. So we. You know, we haven't been surprised with where we are. The one surprise, and it's a compliment to the central banks, maybe it's a backhand a compliment, but, you know, that they have been able to contain or prevent contagion, you know, from all these, you know, major risks that have developed. I say it's a backhand a compliment because in many ways, they're the ones that created the environment for these, you know, <laughs> risks to develop in the first place. Almost. <laughs> hey, that's... Almost I, a compliment for our buddy Tiff there, almost. Can I add some a couple of things? I think it's also important to note sort of that, you know, the market, I'm looking at the, the chart right now and the S&P 500 has, you know, in Q2 of 2022 was at 4,000 and we're at 4,064. So, you know, you've had like, you know, one, two, three, four quarters, I can do math, four quarters basically with an incredible amount of volatility and virtually no return. And I think it's it's sort of we're touching on something we talked about maybe a year and a bit ago, which is, you know, you're in an environment where the cost of capital was free. And you're now in a world where it, cost of capital is something. It, it, I don't know. It's not I don't know what it is. We haven't we're still trying to figure out what that spread is or what the what the neutral rate of interest rates will be, what, um, you know, what we think the terminal Fed funds rate will be. It's just whatever that number is, it's not zero anymore. And it's not deeply, deeply negative in real terms anymore. And I think that whole process, I think, will perpetuate what I think we've been going through, which is you have to, everyone's models, everyone's goal seek models, um, whether you're private equity, whether you're an investment manager, whether you're a single stock, like bottom up guy or girl, your entire um, your interest rate is now different and you have to assess what is going on and how to discount all those future cash flows in your little NPV, your net present value calculator to see what that stock price is, what the S&P 500 should be and whatever. Um, and it also changes what people are willing to pay, pay on a multiple. So your terminal multiple is also changed, right? When interest rates are zero, you, your, your terminal multiple can be very, very high and vice versa. And it's, yes, it's a little bit circular, but the point is, is, in a world with very with low earnings growth, because earnings growth at the at the index level have been flat now for almost eighteen months, 
and you can make the case they might fall. Let's just say for argument's sake, they'll be like you, everything is about this interest rate and everything is so, and the fulcrum on which the entire world is shifting because you have no earnings is just what that, that discount rate is. And until we get some kind of visibility on improving earnings or at least you know, margins that stop falling or, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to rem remain negative and remain defensive and remain cautious until you get some visibility on earnings. Because to me, I don't like playing the interest rate game. That's not, mm, you know, you know I, I'm a, I'm a economic growth, um, you know, earnings growth, multiple contraction someone who likes to chase that multiple contraction on better earnings growth. And right now, really what we're just seeing is just the manifestation of that new paradigm where cost of capital is something in a world with no real earnings. And that's a dangerous game to be super bullish on and ballsy on. I don't know. That's the sort of the way I sort of see it. No, I think that's uh, I mean, it's a good place to wrap it up. Um, you know, as always guys, we appreciate the support uh, behind the scenes here. We are working on some uh, event details for a live event in Vancouver this summer. Uh, come enjoy the Vancouver sunshine. And uh, we're also going to try to do a Calgary tour as well. So we'll kind of do like a, almost like a back-to-back -back Vancouver, Calgary sometime this summer, still working on the details. So stay tuned for that. Um, if you have any sort of comments, suggestions, advice, always send us an email, comment on the YouTube channel, what have you. But uh, we appreciate your support and we'll see you next week.